They are a few sampling or a few samples of approaches that can be taken towards the Word of God, towards the Bible. One would be the, the Xanax approach, and that's the approach uh, that looks to the Bible to make me feel better, looks to the Bible for comfort in my issues and my pain. And the problem with that approach is it asks, how can the Bible serve me versus how can I serve the God that the Bible proclaims? Or the, what I would call the pinball approach. And the pinball approach is really lacking any reference or guide to reading the Bible. I just ping around to whatever scripture I happen to turn to and I ricochet back and forth. And the problem with that is then I, I read the Bible with no understanding of context, no understanding of history or the author or the intent. Or you've got what I would call the, the magic eight ball approach. Any of you remember the magic eight ball? Right, you got this burning question that you have to get answered and you shake the eight ball and then you wait for the answer. We can approach the Bible that way. But the Bible's not magical. And the Bible uh, is first and foremost designed to transform us, not just to answer our most pressing questions, although it does have answers to the hard questions in our world. Or uh, there's the personal shopper approach. Uh, and this approach is basically you don't ever really read the Bible, you just listen to people who teach the Bible. So you podcast to your favorite teachers of the Bible, and there's nothing wrong with that, although that can be kind of the ricochet approach, which is the teacher of the day of the Bible that's popular. And I never really own the Bible myself and read it myself to understand it. Or you've got the Jack Spratt approach. That's an old English nursery rhyme, and Jack Spratt was the character who could eat no fat. This is the, uh, I, I read, I'm a picky eater when it comes to the Bible. Right? So I'm gonna read the portions that I can digest, but there's a lot that is in the Bible that I'm, I'm not willing to digest. Right? So I kind of take what I want from it. Now, Maybe, maybe your approach to the Bible falls in one or multiple of those categories. Maybe you have a different approach you really fall into. But it raises the question, how do you relate to the Word of God? How do you relate to the Word of God? The Scriptures, the Word of God, is proclaimed by Paul in Acts 17 in two different cities. Thessalonica, and Berea. The responses to the word of God being proclaimed in these cities is very different. The Jews in Thessalonica relate to the word of God very differently than the Jews in Berea do. Very different response. But, but before we get to the responses in these two cities, Let's explore what the Bible actually is. What are the scriptures? How are we to understand them? Notice how Paul describes the scriptures in verses two to three. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul reasoned, explained, proved from the scriptures. It wasn't Paul's own ideas that he was putting forth. But what's most notable is how Paul describes the scriptures and what they speak about. It says he explained the scriptures by proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, Paul explaining the scriptures at this point is all of the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet in writing. It was oral at this point. He's explained the entire New, the Old Testament in the context of the scriptures pointing to Jesus. The Bible is not ultimately a book of rules. Although there are commands in the Bible that reveal God's design and flourishing of human life, the Bible's not a book of examples. Although there are plenty of lives documented in the pages of Scripture of people who do very heroic things, but those very same people who do very unheroic things. No, the Bible's a story, and it's one story. It is one story of God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue the world from sin and darkness. The Bible is one story. And what Paul says here is simply repeating what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus with the disciples after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, verses 26 to 27. Jesus says this, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The story of the Bible is about Jesus. And Paul is simply doing in Acts 17 what Jesus had done in Luke chapter 24, which was to explain the Bible as the story of Christ and his mission to rescue this world from sin and darkness. Theologian and missionary to India, Leslie Newbegin, during his time in India, uh, and over really his lifetime of ministry, loved helping people see the Bible as one story. And he recalls in his mission work in India, the time that a Hindu scholar, a Hindu scholar challenged Nubigan. This is what he said to him. I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. This is a quote from a Hindu scholar. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India we don't need anymore. I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole creation, and the history of the human race. Newbegin, in commenting on this, said, 
There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside the Bible. We have fragmented the Bible into bits, moral bits, systematic theological bits, devotional bits, historical critical bits, narrative bits, and homiletical bits. When the Bible is broken up in this way, there is no comprehensive grand narrative to withstand the power of the comprehensive humanist narrative that shapes our culture. The Bible bits are accommodated into the more all-embracing cultural story, and it becomes that story, the humanist story, that shapes our lives. Now, with that understanding of what the Bible is and isn't, that ultimately it's not a book of rules, that ultimately it's not a book of examples, but that it's one story of God rescuing his world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the various responses to the word of God. Let's look at the various responses. And what you're gonna see is, if you ask the question, how do you relate to the Bible? The answer to that question can be summarized in two categories. That you can relate to the Bible in rejection or in submission. And we're gonna explore these. So let's start with rejection. How did the Jews in Thessalonica respond to the word of God? Verse five, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Paul's success with the Gentiles had stirred up the jealousy of these rejecting Jews. They were jealous. Paul was having success with the Gentiles, calling them to Christ. They were following Paul, and these Jews were jealous. They were jealous of Paul's success, and in their jealousy, they got angry. And then in their anger, they hired a couple hitmen in town to stir up a riot, to fabricate this riot so that they could then go to the local authorities and get what they wanted, which is to get Paul and his companions expelled out of the city. So they, they, they fabricate or stir up a riot by hiring some people, and then they go to the local authorities and falsely accuse Paul. Verse seven, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king Jesus. Now, to give some context for that verse, Thessalonica was the capital of this Roman province of Macedonia. And Thessalonica actually minted their own coins. And on their coins was the head of Julius Caesar because they believed that Julius was a god. And so the belief system in Thessalonica was that the the emperor was a universal savior and that his help was to be proclaimed throughout the region as good news. So it was the local authority's job to make sure that Caesar was being worshiped, to keep peace in the city, but also to stay in the good graces of the emperor. And so these Jews because they were jealous of Paul's success and wanted him out of the city, 
to get what they wanted, stirred up this riot, and then brought this case before the local authorities so they could get the result that they wanted. They turned to unbelieving government authorities to stabilize and support the world that they had created. That's the reason why they rejected Paul's message of the gospel about Jesus. They rejected it because they had created a world of stability. These Jews had created a world of stability and it was working. Things were stable. And when the scriptures no longer supported and stabilized the world they had created, they rejected them and then began looking for something else to support and stabilize the world they had created. So once they had rejected the scriptures, because the scriptures were no longer serving their desires and their interests, then they turned to the unbelieving authorities, the Roman government, this belief system. I mean, at that point, it was whatever we can get to support and stabilize this world we've created, we're gonna do. There was no way in their mind that their world was gonna be turned upside down. They were gonna have things stabilized. And you say, what does that look like today? What does this look like today? I'm a high performer. I'm a successful person. And my performance and my success has led to a very stable career. I use the scriptures to stabilize and support this world of success and performance I've created so that my world doesn't get turned upside down. Or I'm politically far right or I'm far left or I'm moderate middle. I'm gonna use the scriptures to stabilize and support the world I've created so that the world doesn't get turned upside down. And what I want you to see is that this is ultimately a rejection of the scriptures because the scriptures are good and useful only if they are stabilizing and supporting the world that I have created. On November 9th, 1938, Nazi forces smashed windows and destroyed, set fire to 1,400 synagogues across Germany and they began to systematically destroy Torah scrolls across Germany, the Torah being the first five books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. And the Nazi forces did this in a very public way to make a public spectacle. So in one town, they took the scrolls and they rolled them down a hill and Hitler youth on bicycles would just run over the scrolls. In another town, they had a, they set fire and they were setting fire to the scrolls and the German men would dress in the robes of the rabbis and dance around the fire. It was a public, public spectacle. In his book, A World Without Jews, Professor Alan Confino 
argues that in order for the Nazi imagination to flourish, they had to get rid of everything Jewish, including the scriptures. And so this very symbolic public act of burning the Old Testament scriptures, at least they thought, would liberate Germany from any connection to Judeo-Christianity or that system of belief. Confino in his book says this, burning the Hebrew Bible scrolls was a project to construct a new German Christianity that would owe nothing to the Jews and to other Christian Europeans. The enslavement of Europeans to the Nazis' worldview depended on the destruction of the Jews first. Now, do you see what, what's happening here? When Hitler saw that the scriptures would not stabilize or support the German world that he was trying to create, he rejected them. Now, how is it any different when we reject or ignore parts of Scripture that don't stabilize or support the world we have created? We use parts that support our worldview and we reject or ignore parts that don't. Coming to the scriptures to find stability and support for the world you have created is ultimately a rejection of the scriptures. So how do you relate to the word of God? That's one way to reject them. But the other way is to submit to them. Paul leaves Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He goes to the synagogue. He begins reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogue at Berea, and he finds a very different response to the scriptures from the Jews in Berea. Very different response. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They took Paul's message. They put it under the light of the scriptures. The scriptures were the ultimate authority that everything submitted to. So everything they would submit underneath the scriptures to see if it was true. The Jews in Thessalonica used the scriptures. The Jews in Berea submitted to the scriptures. And there's a big, big difference there. You can come to the scriptures to find stability and support for the world you have created, or you can come to the scriptures willing to have your world turned upside down. And that's what the Jews in Thessalonica confessed when Paul came into their city. Verse six, these men, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The world was being turned upside down, and it wasn't Paul. 
or his companions. It was the word of God that was being proclaimed. And the word is living and active. It reveals a living person. The word of God is Jesus. Jesus was being proclaimed and Jesus was turning the world upside down. That's what they were witnessing in these cities. And Paul himself had his world turned upside down by the word of God not too long before on the road to Damascus. Let me just remind you, this word of God that Paul is proclaiming, prior to coming to know Jesus on the Damascus road, he was a very successful man. He was a very uh, powerful man. He was well-respected. He had a place. He had stability. He had things under control. And then Jesus met him. The word of God met him on the Damascus road. And Paul's world got turned upside down. And he began preaching this word and teaching this word in cities. And those cities began to be turned upside down. Question is, do you come to the word of God willing to have your world turned upside down? And the honest answer is, no! Nobody wants their world turned upside down. Of course not. Why not? Let me ask a few more questions. It's gonna to get to the core of this. How many of you come to the word of God to have your sins taken away? Yes, we come to the word all the time to be reminded, right? To be reminded that Jesus has taken our sins away. We love the great exchange, this beautiful truth that, that Jesus takes our sin and then gives us or imputes to us his perfection, his righteousness, as we should. We love that. But do you come to the word of God to have your will taken away? The great exchange includes Christ's righteousness for my sin, but it also includes Christ's will for my selfish, sinful will. The great exchange includes both. Do you come to the word of God willing to have your world turned upside down? If your answer to that is honestly at a heart level, your answer is no. Then what you're saying is, I want my circumstances right side up. I don't really care if my heart is upside down. If your answer to that question is yes, I come to the scriptures willing to have my world turned upside down, then what you're really saying is, I want my heart right side up. And I am willing to have my circumstances turned upside down. 
Jesus is absolutely 100% committed to your heart being upside right. He is not committed to your circumstances being upside right. Are you willing to submit to the word of God even if it means your circumstances are turned upside down? A church leader was sharing his experience of serving in Romania during the communist era. And he described how they would preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to a room full of people. And he said oftentimes at the end of preaching the gospel, he would have people come up to him and say, I've trusted Jesus Christ, I want to follow him. And he would give this kind of response, that's great. And I'm encouraged that you wanna trust Christ and follow him, but are you aware of the cost? Consider the cost because many things can happen to you. You can lose and lose big. And, and even after saying that to those that came up, a high percentage of those people said yes. And so they would go into a three-month catechism class, which was basically just a class over three months that would explain the gospel more fully. And then coming out of that class, many of them would say, I want to be baptized. I trust Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm following him. I want to be baptized. And then this church leader would respond with something like this. We are so encouraged you want to trust Christ. We're so encouraged that you want to follow him, and that you want to be baptized. But when you give your testimony, there will be informers here who will jot your name down. Like this is in a communist setting. Tomorrow the problems will start. Count the cost. Christianity is not easy. It's not cheap. You can be demoted. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can lose your neighbors. You can lose your kids who are climbing the social ladder. You can even lose your life. I mean, can you imagine? We don't understand that in our, in our culture. Someone says, I want to trust Christ, and we try to argue him out of it. And what's amazing is that this church leader recalls after the class and after speaking that to them, he recalls with joy, looking at their eyes as they were filled with tears. And the people would say, if I lose everything but my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it is still worth it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor who resisted the Nazi movement. He vocally opposed Hitler's persecution of the, of the Jews. And because of that, because of his resistance and his vocal opposition, he got hung to death. He was hung to death in 1945 as the Nazi regime collapsed. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said this. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. 
to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Can, can anyone say amen to understanding that? That you see the road ahead or the road you're on and you're, you're going, this is too hard. This is too hard. I can't keep pressing on. What Bonhoeffer says, a man who understood the hard road, he was hung to death at the end of it. He says, eyes off of the hard road and eyes onto Christ. That's self-denial. He says, once more, all that self-denial can say is, he, Jesus, leads the way. Keep close to him. When you come to the Scripture, you come to a person. When you come to the scriptures, you come to a person. The person of Jesus Christ. The one who out of deep love gave himself for you on the cross and rose from the dead for you. And calls you to submit to him completely. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for using your word to stabilize and to support the world that we have created. And by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you bring us to the place of submitting to your word, not using it, but submitting to it, ultimately understanding that the word is living. It reveals a living person, Jesus Christ. Father, there's some in here who have been exploring Christianity, exploring what it means to follow Jesus. And if they're honest, they're probably looking at the hard road ahead. And they may be saying, that road is too hard. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you soften them? Would you bring them to the place as we hear of these new believers in Romania years ago in the, in, in the communist era of saying we're willing to lose everything but our personal relationship with Christ, would that be true of us? We don't live in a land of persecution and suffering. We're not even living in a place like Ukraine right now where we could be attacked and, and, and huddling because there's missiles and bombs dropping around us and we have dear brothers and sisters in Christ who are staying put in the Ukraine in the midst of this. But Father, just because we don't live in a land of suffering and persecution doesn't mean that our hearts can be 100% committed to Christ no matter what the cost. So Father, for those of us, all of us in some way, that have been looking at the hard road or the inconvenience or the uncomfortableness and maybe walking away or maybe just ignoring or rejecting that part of the word that maybe speaks into it, would you, by your spirit, bring us to a place of complete and utter submission? And we know, as you say, God, that when we do submit in that way, there is nothing but joy. Oh, circumstances will still be hard, maybe even harder. But there's a deep joy that resonates in the heart.
because we were made to be in a relationship with you, Jesus. And so would you draw every single person here today, those viewing online, to a place of willing submission before a great and mighty Savior and a loving Savior. And as we close in worship, would we sing from hearts that are full of joy over the salvation that you have accomplished for us, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.